Peter, you're done texting? No. I, I can't text during the podcast. I have to stop. I mean, you can. You can do whatever you want. I'll be texting during the podcast. I have to say that I'm, I'm, I just spent a week teaching students at Johns Hopkins, and all of them but one didn't actually use their mobile phones while I was teaching. Did not? No, no, no. One of them did, just nonstop. Did you, did you, did you put a rule down about no, that? No, 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 no. I was like, it's an intercession course. They were meant to have a good time. Mm. Um, I gave them like 10-minute breaks and stuff so they could go and, I don't know, whatever you do. Um, Telegram or TikTok or something. TikTok? Yeah, they went and TikToked. Um, but, uh, they were really well behaved and they were quite focused. Uh, so what, what course were you teaching? What were you, did you have a reading list for them? I mean, if they're having fun, they're not reading or what's the, what's the concept? Um, no, no, it was, it was basically based on my books and the work and the research that we do that hmm. we're bringing to Johns Hopkins University from September. So, um, you know, it was all about that. Is this a, a grad, grad course? Grad no, 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 these are undergrads. These are undergrads. undergrads. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Really, really, Smart, um, articulate, and really nice. It was like chemistry majors, computer science majors, politics majors, and um, it was really interesting seeing them all talk about. Hmm. Hmm. So we stuff. have uh, we have Peter Pomerantsev with us, Shadi. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and we have him with us in, in more ways than one. I mean, he's he's moving here. Wait, you're moving to uh, DC? Cheers. Wow, this is great news. Yeah, wow, it it'll be great news. to have you. Um, and I think uh, it's great to have you too because you, you're the author of two great books, and I, your first book has one of the best titles I've ever I've ever heard. It's called. Um, uh, let me make sure I get this right. <laughs> Nothing is true. Very memorable. <laughs> Nothing is true, and everything is possible. Mm. That's which good. I think, yeah, that's it. Which I think captures the moment that we're in. It's you know, you know, you know what's funny? Shadi borrowed that book about <laughs> six months ago, and he's been reading it so carefully. I think he's probably read it like six or seven times in the in the time. He just won't give it back. You know, but the sad thing, I think I might have actually lost your copy, Demir, really, because I brought it to France. Remember when we were? Well, you weren't with us, but mm. I was at that castle in Normandy. Oh yeah, with Ben Haddad, and I was trying to read it there, but then I think I might have left it in the castle. Peter, do you, do you, do you, do you have a feeling of self-loathing when you hear stories like this that our friends are just reading each other's books and castles in Normandy? Isn't this, isn't this what the problem is? This is why the populists are getting their pitchforks up against us? Um, <laughs> right. I, I've never been that narcissistic. I mean, this is my problem. I've never seen myself as part of any kind of elite or establishment. I don't feel the pitchforks are directed at me. But, but I mean, Shadi's reading your book in a, in a chateau somewhere. Yeah. I mean, normally full of that stuff. It's like, you know, you know, it's like, it's like being a Hungarian count. Everybody in Hungary is a count. Every, like, even you know, Sebastian Gorka probably. Is he a count? Count Gorka? No, but I mean, he's Hungarian, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> true. So therefore probably a minor aristocrat. I don't know. Castle Normandy is like, you know, whatever. Yeah. That's just how we roll. That's normal. Yeah. That's standard. And we also have Karina Orlova here. So this is, you know, we go from just me and you to to four people in a room. It's kind of crazy. It's the most guests we've actually ever had in our history as a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. I think, Demir, you kind of missed that. I think Shadi said that he didn't read the book. Right, he didn't he read the book. He was going to no, read no, no, it, and I, then he <laughs> left it there. He kind of lost it there. No. So how do you, Peter, feel about that? No, I'm sort of in the middle of it. I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't finish it, but I have read enough of it to know it's a great book. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, it is a great book. I, I, you know, uh, without, without exaggerating, I, it's, it's, if anyone, uh, you know, knows nothing about, uh, I think, you know, modern Russia and they want, a, uh, 
how do I put it, just a, a, a good intro that is not didactic or academic, but is entertaining, but really captures, I think, the moment. I always recommend that book to, to whoever it is. I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's quite good uh, for that. And the telltale sign, I think, of all good books on Russia is they really capture at least what appears to me as an outsider to be the absurdity of life. And they're just, I can't even, I'm not even sure what the right words are for because it seems really foreign to me as someone who has never been to Russia and who doesn't study Russia. But I think one thing that you capture, at least in the parts of the book that I read, is really this kind of, this, um, this absurdity and this foreignness and this Kafkaesque aspect to living in Russia and getting through the day. Is that, is that fair to say? Um, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, when one starts living in Russia, one realizes that all these great Russian books that that I grew up in, uh, grew up with as well, because I I grew up in London, um, like, you know, Gogol and, and Bulgakov and all these fun, crazy surrealist books are not surrealism at all. They're realism. That's just what Russia is like. Um, so, so yeah. Um, so maybe not Kafka. I mean, there's a very rich Russian tradition of describing Russia this way. When's um, the last time you've been, you've been back, uh, to, to, to Moscow? To, to Moscow. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't actually, actually last time I was there was, was the day MH17 got shot down. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was there that I was, I was doing a report, writing a report on Russian propaganda. Um, and that was what? That was quite a few years ago, 2014? 15? 15. 15, yeah, 15, 2015. Um, but I go to Ukraine a lot, which is nothing like Russia, but gives me, um, some sort of insights into, into some goings on. It was 14, I'm sorry. It was 2014, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, um, how, how is your stuff received there? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, in Moscow, there's a, it's relatively free and, and there's a liberal scene and it, it's fine. But uh, do you, do you get, do you get a, have you, have you ever given talks to sort of more government types about, about your work and research or has it mostly just been to, you know, uh, mm. common thinkers in Moscow? Do you ever get invited to, to, uh, talk about your research? Yeah. Never? Like, I don't think anybody knows who I am really? in Moscow. I occasionally get featured on some of the nasty propaganda programs as one of the enemies of Russia. Hmm. But like, I like, I'm in a list. It's always like, Anne Applebaum, Edward Lucas. Um, yeah, I'm kind of like, you know, the little munchkin. Uh, my new books actually has been translated by a Russian publishing house and it's coming out there, I think, in March. So maybe the new one would be of interest. I, I don't think. I mean, I, I describe Russia for a foreigner. Why would Russians care? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, the, the other part of the, the book, apart from describing Russia, is that, you know, I, that first book really does lead into the second book in a lot of ways. It, it's, it's, uh, it describes not just modern Russia, but, but the, the sort of media landscape that, you know, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, the argument to a certain extent is it was born in 1990s Russia. At least a lot of the, the, uh, the, the stuff that shapes our reality today started then. And to really understand ourselves, I mean, the, the, the poignant part at the, the end of the book is you come back to the West and, and you see it already bleeding into it. And now here we are several years later and, uh, it's, it's Trump world. It's, it's, uh, up is down. Um, and then maybe Demir, for the benefit of our, our, our dear listeners, we should just mention the title of, of Peter's of latest book. Yeah. book. It's, so it's called, this is not propaganda, colon, adventures in the war against reality. So, uh, we'd recommend our, uh, 
are very um, rabid fan base to kind of take a look and buy a copy of your book. <laughs> How many people listen to your podcast? Just as a matter of interest. I don't know. It's more than you might think. Yeah, actually. come on. Give, us, give us your numbers. <laughs> give us your numbers. Okay. I swear, I have actually walked into random house parties in D.C. and people will be like, <laughs> oh, my God. You're shoddy. You're, you're sh- that same shoddy. I mean, from the no. podcast. Yeah. yeah. It's like, wait, I've been listening to your podcast with Demir. Like, your podcast is awesome. And I swear, like, these are sometimes people I've never met before. But the, the, the thing they get excited about is the podcast. <laughs> okay. As so more than you'd imagine. So, so, but in terms of like, it's very easy to track numbers of downloads and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I like think our, we're, we're about a, a 12, 1200 per episode is kind of where we're at, which is pretty solid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Peter, yeah. it's good. It's good. Okay. Peter's good. not impressed. It's no, good. It's no good. of course it's not. Good. It's good. It's good. Uh, so no pressure. We can, no. we can, we can be really irreverent here. Only 1200 people will ever hear it. <laughs> no, but they're 1200 really important people. Oh, that's true. Yeah. It's people at Shadi's house parties. <laughs> <laughs> Shadi, tell me which house parties you've been going to recently. Well, Just so I, I get a sense of who I'm talking to. Um, well, you know, uh, so there are some, it depends. Like I have, I, I would like to say that I hang out with different kinds of people. I have my friends like Demir. And don't go to house parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting. So I think that as I've gotten more into questions around the role of religion in America and things like that, I've gotten to know more conservatives who are engaged on these issues. And sometimes they invite me to their parties and they're really into like bizarre pod, like, these more niche podcasts. And I think they're, those are some of the people who have really gotten into what we do because we focus a lot on religion, culture, identity in a kind of irreverent way. And we ramble a lot and we don't really have a script. And I think that there's a certain kind of personality that finds that appealing. Right. A certain kind of personality. So it's basically your, your own kind of identity formation. People like go, how are you listening to the cool podcast? Like, ah, oh, this is the new cool podcast. So is that how kind of matchmaking is done? It's like, oh, I knew she was the one for me because she listened to Shadi's podcast. You know, I, I, we're, I, I, I've we're, asked, just, we're just that niche. I mean, I, I haven't profited in that way from this podcast. This if that's like what a, you're saying. I, I think you have a kind of like, you know, podcast Tinder thing going on here. Uh, podcast Tinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so you think, people, wait, we're, we're, we're matching people or, yeah, so or Shadi and I are using it to, It's like, you know, when you're a teenager, you like go out with somebody who likes the same weird, you know, Oh, so Shadi and I are partnering up. Yeah, you're like, you're like, remember We're when, discovering each other. Remember when Jurassic 5 started as a rap group and like it was kind of cool to know them? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like the Jurassic 5. Of, no, I mean, I it's think, very early Jurassic I think five. what Peter means is that out of those 1,200 people who listen to the podcast... Our wives are among they them? Might, no, they oh. might actually amongst themselves, if they meet someone, like, oh my God, you listen to that too. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's oh, what I mean. They I see, actually I decide to yeah. marry each other because of me and you. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, maybe not. Maybe go for a dinner date. Okay. Didn't say marry. <laughs> but like a start of something. But, but obviously but, that's what I meant. Sorry, is that not clear? No, no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> no, I try to get, yeah. But maybe just for the, also just for the, the, um, the benefit of our listeners, can you maybe, Peter, say a little bit about the surrealism for people who don't know Russia all that well? How would you sort of describe that to the kind of lay outsider? Like uh, about some of those vignettes that maybe, especially you talked about in the first uh, couple chapters of the book where I think you went into some, club with like some really interesting characters and just crazy crazy shit ensued right you remember that one when crazy shit ensued there was definitely something about going to a club with like yeah with like random like russian women who were <laughs> like uh the girlfriends of oligarchs or something like that um well um 
No, uh, look, this is all a long time ago. This is Moscow's jazz age, lots of money, early 2000s, amazing parties. I'm glad I, I saw it and survived. Um, so, so I don't know. It was, it was quite, you know, I think, I don't think it's particularly unfamiliar from a description of a party in America's jazz age in the 1920s. Mm. It's that kind of oil boom and it's that kind of, that kind of energy. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm basically scandalized that Shadik, you know, uh, is talking about this absurdity and surrealism as if it doesn't exist here in the States already. Okay, well, I'm sorry, Shadi, but if you, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, 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 so you're like uh, so surprised and you're, you know, you're so curious about it as if it's so something so exotic, which is not because, you know, here finally we have all this surrealism, all this United Russia surrealism, crazy stuff. Going on. Well, tell me. I right mean, away. Well, we okay. can, we, 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 like, we can like talk about the politics. today in the Capitol, like this crazy uh, Republican senator, he, you know, he told Manu Raju from CNN, just, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. You're a liberal hack. Do you know who calls others uh, liberal hacks? Like Russians. Russians do that. Okay, I was but, called a liberal hack, a liberal fascist, in fact, when I was, yeah, when I was hosting Echo's programs in Moscow. That's, that's how crazy well, Karina, it is. <laughs> Karina, yeah. don't get me wrong. We have our weird things in the U.S. too, but I think the Russian version of it isn't, it's not like, it's not exactly the same. Oh, There's something different longer. about it, right? It's just been longer. Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait, watch okay, it. Well, watch I don't know it. what you guys think about this. So my other main exposure to, to Russian life is from, uh, Svetlana, I always mispronounce Alexievich. her last name. Alexievich. Yes, Alexievich. Nobel Prize winner from a few years back. She, she, she wrote this wonderful book that I read recently called Secondhand Time. And she has these little vignettes with Russians where she does sort of linger on the exceptionalism of Russia uh, in, in some interesting. So she, she has this exchange between, I guess, um, I'll find it. It's really good. But anyway, um, she really emphasizes Russian suffering, that Russians love this idea from her, like this is what she seems to be conveying in her book, that Russians almost in this weird way take pride in their long history of suffering. And it's that suffering that get, that makes them feel distinctly Russian. So I think there are these aspects that comes, that come through in the work of Russian writers, this kind of Russian exceptionalism, is, is that not fair? It is. Yes, it is. I don't support this idea. I mean, I don't support, I don't share this feeling. So probably I'm not Russian at all. You don't, you don't, you're, you're not suffering. Yeah, I hate, yeah, I hate it. I don't think it's, yeah, I, it, it's bullshit actually. It's suffering. <laughs> okay. No, yeah, suffering is meant for like, you know, idiots. It's like, you know, this fasting in Christianity and like, Orthodox Russian Christianity. It's all, it, I mean, it was created because there was like a hunger and there was no, you know, crops. And so you, you, <laughs> people were told, people were told you have to fast in the name of Jesus Christ. And anyway, yeah, we're fasting. But you know what? Guess <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, we call it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if there's. We call the the Great Fast. <laughs> Stalin was just getting Ukrainians to fast. Yes, yes, No, yes. not this. I mean, I'm, uh, listen, Peter, that's fine. Yeah, but just help me out. There's this, Peter, help me out. There's this great expression in Russian. It's called, uh, it's like, you know, talks in, you know, benefit, like, you know, 
Kind of how the French and the Americans are, are flip sides of the liberty coin. There's also something about, I think, how weird America is and how weird Russia is that, and, and this is not about Trump or Putin. I think it's just, there's a kind of, there's a kind of weirdness in the water. I, you live here long enough. I personally don't see it so much anymore. You're uh, going to be teaching in Baltimore. So you'll be spending a lot of time there. Baltimore, I feel is like one of the, the, uh, the, don't uh, repeat it. Don't the, repeat no, no, it. No, no, I the know sources, the sources of weirdness, just like the sources of weirdness. Well, uh, if you look at, you know, the, the, you know, the great Roger Waters, that's it. Yeah, not Roger Waters. Uh, what's his name? Uh, that's someone else. Roger Waters is from Pink Floyd. Floyd. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, and no, he is weird. Um, <laughs> John Waters. John Waters. Movies. John Waters They're and his films. Yeah, John Waters. Yeah. And so there, there used to be a bar in Baltimore that, uh, I think is closed right now, but when I was in college, I was going there a lot and it's called the Rendezvous Lounge. It was near Johns Hopkins, just a couple of blocks away. Hopkins kids never went there. It was all in like a locals bar and Waters would hang out there. He would just sort of pop in there. And it was just, it was like a, a bar from Star Wars, just like a bunch of, bunch of weirdos. Um, now Baltimore has, you know, uh, as I think you're discovering, it's a lot of problems and it's a, can be a very depressing place, but it's also, you know, it, 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 it's reasonably cheap to live. It attracts strange people and it has a, like a lot of American cities, a really interesting and weird sort of background, which I think, uh, as Americans, shoddy, we, we take for granted. And I think, you know, it's easy for us to sort of exoticize Russia. But I mean, so the question for you, Karina, no, for example, just, now living here, how weird is America for you? Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, uh, defend Russia. No, it's no, no. I mean, Russia is horrible. And <laughs> it's, yeah, in, in all, all possible ways. Yeah, really. It's it happened, like it happened, it happened, one of the worst places on earth. Trust wait, me. Wait, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Okay, that's probably one of the worst places on earth. Yes. Today, but why? But why do you think that? That's interesting well, that you would I mean, say that. Yeah, because, you know, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I'm only 34, but I, I, I know, you know, I read history books and I know that there has not been, you know, probably like a distant period of 10 years of good life in Russia for Russians, for, for the people. It's always been a mess. And it's horrible. It's, it's just a horrible place to live. You know, it's, 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 it's always been like but that. But so that's different. That's different from how we view America because this no, is true. This is where yeah. maybe the surrealism comes in. Amer Americans have their interesting, unique features, but when I living life in America as an American, I don't feel that I experience a lot of surrealism. So if that's the word that even, we're using, no, to describe, even with Trump, but, but I was, no, I I was know, talking but, about. But I know you're talking about politics. I'm trying to get us into this more like the broader question. Because for example, you know, like you know where where it's weird. West Coast for me is weird. That's where I get a sense of like no, how, it, I, I how mean, strange America is. West Coast is. is amazing. It's so close to Europe. And this is weird. The oh, East okay. Coast no, is weird. No, fair enough. <laughs> but Florida you know I mean? is weird. Palm Beach is weird. I mean, it's crazy. It's horrible. Well, okay. So tell me about, tell wait, me about what you find Palm weird. About, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. <laughs> okay. tell, tell me about, yeah. so tell me, you know, so yeah. how, how long have you been in the States now, Korea? Uh, four years. Four years. And you've been traveling a bit. You've oh, been, you've yes. been getting a sense of it. I'm, I'm not allowed to leave the country. So I have to travel 
inside, inside. the US. So yeah. good. So now, I mean, I mean, not good, but tell me, tell me about the, uh, uh, you know, your, your impressions again. You, so you're saying now you said West Coast is not weird. The East Coast is weird. Tell me about well, that. Well, to because, me, yeah. No, yeah. to you, to you as yeah. an outsider. I so, think that's right. The West Coast is, uh, I mean, I don't like LA. I prefer, uh, Northern California. It's, it's nice, you know, it's very, um, the people it's are relaxed. Different. People are different. The uh, the food is so good. It's so European. You won't find in, like in the worst restaurant in California. You won't find you know like uh, you you will find better food than you can find here in like different restaurants. And so the, the approach it's more relaxed and it's more European. I don't know how because the West Coast is so much farther from. Uh, is it European for or? Europe? Uh, to me, yes. I mean, it's closer. Maybe, uh, maybe it's not fair to call it European, but it's closer. To me, it's like the, there's people that like to hike a lot, and that's weird. No. They're always just like, "Oh, no. let's go out." No, they do. That is it's, that I really mean, makes me uncomfortable. These, out, these outdoors so people. It's weird. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're you're maybe hanging out with like with with uh, with cool hipsters in San Francisco, but in general, I mean, like, no, you know, my guys, I like one of them is vice president of a tech company. So yeah, they're not hipsters. So, okay, you know, right. with vice hipsters. president of a. They're gonna they're gonna be living the sort of uh, the the life. The fancy life, yeah, yeah, nice. I mean, it's nice here. Uh, so I I don't I, and I can see the difference. You know, you can always tell the difference between a like you know the. Um, West Coast, you know, wealthy people and the East Coast wealthy people, especially this, you know, Florida, Palm Beach. I just, I've seen that. I was shocked. You, you live part time in Florida, yeah? Yeah, I don't live there. I just go there a lot. And I've been to Palm Beach again. I was just, I keep talking about Palm Beach because this, this, it horrified me. Have you guys been? I've never been. Have no. you been? Have you been? Don't go. Peter, have you been so, to, have you, tra- how much have you traveled around the States? Um, well, we, we, I mean, I, I have a lot of relatives here, so I go and see them a lot. And where are they? Where are they? They're, um, they're, they're, they used to in New York, so I spent all my summers in in, in Brighton Beach as a mm-hmm. child. So oh, I, I, wow. I, I know I know a little bit about America, just just that bit of it really. And and then now they're in New Jersey, and then we have a lot of friends in Oregon. Oh wow! So, so okay. I, we were the only bit of the family that stayed in Europe after emigrating from the um, from the USSR, and so kind of most of my parents' friends and family are here. So you you but you've you've done the bicoastal thing, so you can compare East Coast West Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean. Oregon is West Coast. It's yeah, no, it is. It's I think I wonder, so. you know, I wonder what, what we can nail when we say European. What the West Coast is, is a wine culture. Uh, mm. And that wine feedback and that relationship with time and that sophistication that wine brings, I think that's maybe what we mean by European. That's a kind of, that's the lifestyle. That's, that's, um, um, if we talk about LA specifically, I mean, LA is the city that's most similar to Moscow that I've ever been to. It's that same mix of money, love and mysticism. And superficiality. Same, well, it's both, but, but a kind of a cult of superficiality <laughs> where it's theatrical. Uh, yeah, the theatricality of existence is very, is very, is very evident in both. That same kind of weird dynamic sugar daddy surrounded by pretty girls, which is very Moscow and very LA. I mean, but Moscow also has Washington in it. So imagine right. Washington was inside LA and then you have Moscow and snow. Right. But, but when I came to LA, I was like, okay, finally I find a place that resonates with, with my still very deep love of Moscow. Hmm. <gasps> you still have it. You still share well, it. Well, cause I'm, I haven't been there for five years. So I can, it's, Maybe, it's, yeah. it's my youth. So. Hmm. Okay. Well, so can I, can I, you know, I just want to quote something from secondhand time. It's a really interesting. So, um, okay. I'll just, I'll just read this out because I think it con- conveys this idea, um, that we were talking about. Okay. So I guess she's just quoting some random Russian person. And so the way that secondhand time, uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich's book, 
it's kind of these anecdotes and vignettes from different Russians that she spoke to over a certain period of time. Okay, here's a Russian speaking. I want to live in a different kingdom where the rivers run with milk and their banks are heaped with jam. We're dreamers, of course. Our souls strain and suffer, but not much gets done. There's no strength left over after all that ardor. Nothing ever gets done. The mysterious Russian soul, dot, dot, dot. Everyone wants to understand it. They read the... I'm getting to the punchline, guys. <laughs> okay. Sorry. They, they read Dostoevsky. What's behind that soul of theirs? Well, behind our soul, there's just more soul. Oh my god! So I like that. That's really interesting. Oh all the way down. Right, so so when, when a down. Russian asks, like, so what is behind the Russian soul? Do, do you more think, soul. Do you think this quote belongs to a 15-year-old teen that is, you know, who is trying to be very high? Well, it seems rather there. poetic. Uh, um, no, it seems rather. That is like the, um, that's the that is the antithesis of poetry. Poetry is all about finding new <laughs> ways to describe what you can't express. In Russian, you know, there's a, you could do kind of a text analysis. The way the Russian soul is used in Russian discourse, it's always to paper over things we don't want to talk about. Okay, mm. but oh, it's the Russian soul. Oh, my grandfather was a KGB officer. It's the Russian soul. Okay, but it's but, like it's the way it's it's where we in the West have put the subconscious and tried to excavate it. They just have the Russian soul. So we're not talking about things. It's the antithesis of poetry. Okay, but as an outsider who's not really that well-versed in Russian literature, we don't actually talk about the Egyptian soul or the Arab soul. I'm actually not used to that way of describing anything. The American soul, even that... Because we talk about the unconscious. We start exploring it. And Russia never had a big Freudian moment. Um, Dostoevsky is completely misread here in the West. Dostoevsky is a satirist who's laughing at this. The Brothers Karamazov is a satire on this sort of pretentious bollocks. Uh, and it always fascinates me in the Westerns completely misread him. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. This is like obvious when you read him in Russian. He's teasing this. Um, yeah, but also he shared very, very poor beliefs and he was a very like bad person, you know, very dark minded. That's one of the best things about him. Uh, Y- y- yes, but Shadi, my advice, uh, <laughs> once you hear, once you encounter a Russian person who starts to feed you with this crap yeah. about like the Russian, Russian soul. soul, just run away and never go back. It's just, the, I mean, really. But to be fair, I think that, I, I think that in, in her, in the book, she's also problematizing it. So it's not as if this is to, this is meant to be taken at face value unless you guys have a different reading. I think that she's trying to get into these Russian, Stere- this Russian self-perception or these Russian stereotypes as Russians themselves see it. And she's trying to understand what is really behind this way of talking. Yeah, and no, she's- that's, that's, why she, that's why she's so important. And that's why she's ignored in Russia, by the way. She is all about that. She's like, let's excavate the trauma. Yeah. Her books are, sod this Russian soul, let's talk about the soldiers that were brought, uh, brought back in zinc coffins. Let's talk about Chernobyl. What's fascinating about Alexei, she's completely ignored in Russia, completely ignored by the Moscow literati. Huh. And when she won the Nobel Prize, they were like, this Belarusian woman who, who just does interviews won the Nobel Prize? We do such high things exploring the soul. And no, she's the opposite. She's an attempt to do therapy. Yeah. Like, as in bringing into speech these terrible experiences. Um, so, you know, I, that, my, my, uh, sound of, of, of throwing up, was uh not at Alexei, which yeah. I think is incredibly important. Okay. 
Yeah. No. So well, t- tell us about this Moscow literati. Like, are they just totally vacuous? No, they're brilliant and excellent. A, a tragedy happened with, 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 with Russian culture. And since up until the 19th century, Russian culture is part of European culture and plays a, you know, a huge role in it. It's maybe, you know, credit where credit's due, probably, you know, the most, the biggest one in, in, in Europe in terms of its sort of literary and, 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 and poetic power. And then, when the Soviet Union happens, you see it drifting away and drifting away and becoming encased in its own problems, which aren't universal. Uh, and essentially, you have this generation of geniuses in Russia, because it still turns out geniuses. But they're just kind of trapped in their own little bubble, um, doing kind of Russian postmodernism that only Russians understand, uh, which is great, but it's completely untranslatable. Actually, Pussy Riot, I thought, were the first Russian cultural phenomenon, which made sense in the West. Because we could, because they, you know, they'd been very influenced by the West. And at least they were here with someone one could, you know, question how, well, they were very successful. They were using protest art and they, they were very successful at that. But they were the first ones where I saw Westerners, go, oh, well, we understand what they're doing. A lot of time Westerners look at kind of like contemporary Russian poetry or novels and they just don't understand what's going on because it's so self-referential and it's so caught in these little micro games. You know, um, you know, as you're, you're, you're talking there, uh, something struck me because, you know, the, the great Russian soul thing uh, ends up getting picked up by all Slavs that are trying to sort of come up with a nation in under all these empires, right? It ends up being this like the, the Slavic, the tortured Slav thing. But that is something that happens in the mid to late 19th century. And it's, there's something to the fact that, that, you know, the, the impact of Russia as the Russian empire, it's, 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 uh, um, I guess somehow that, I, I don't know, maybe I'm well, that let's, for let's, me. Let's, How does let's, that sort of come up? Let's play around on this because, the, the literary tradition where there really is a genuine tradition of suffering and it makes sense from its national story is Ukraine. So the Ukrainian poetry is always about the suffering poet who is literally arrested by the Russian Tsars, Shevchenko, or uh, the KGB, Stus, and sent to the Gulag and dies for his language. So Ukraine is deeply linked with its history of fighting for its language and dying for its language and being sacrificed for it. So that's kind of, it's almost as if Russia is the imperial power, is as a culture nicking the suffering that it's imposed on its colonials and bringing it into itself. There could be a weird type of imperial appropriation going there. Because Russia, of course, is the opposite. It's the aggressor. Right, right. Um, so I don't know. In Ukraine, it's been very interesting to see how Ukraine has evolved very recently from this tradition of the suffering Ukrainian poet, which is, which is about real suffering and real sacrifice and real danger. Um, and something else, you now have finally a generation of Ukrainian writers who do not play the suffering card. They're joyful writers, this celebrate freedom, a post-colonial experience. So that's very interesting. Uh, and there I think, uh, the suffering is very, uh, but the old suffering was very legitimized. So was it Russia, you know, pushing forward its suffering or quite the opposite? Was it Russia kind of like gathering the suffering of others for its, to, to blot out its own guilt? No, I mean, so, so again, just to push on, cause I think it really is an interesting point you're getting at. When, when does, when does this Russian soul stuff start making an appearance? Obviously Dostoevsky is poking fun at it already. So it's already playing a role in the sort of literature in the 19th century. Um, but, uh, you know, there's still an empire at that point. So when does it become sort of, when do they imbibe the, the colonial narrative? When they're colonized by the Georgian, uh, <laughs> by Stalin and, 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 uh, you know, that Stalinism takes it? No, it, it's before then that this, this sort of stuff is kicking around, right? I mean, ISIS, so Russia, okay, I'm not a Russian literary historian. Mm, I'm sure, sure. there's people who studied the, the genesis of the, 
you know, the the origins of the Russian soul kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, But no. I think Karina was on something very, very prescient there. I mean, Russia isn't just a country that colonizes others, it colonizes itself. Mm. So I don't know, maybe it's in that dynamic, in the oppression of others, oppression of your own population, and then using suffering as a cult, cult yeah. to kind of like excuse the suffering that you impose. Mm. But, but a lot of countries oppress their own citizens. What would you say is distinctive about what makes it a different a step above that, which is this kind of self-colonization. How would you sort of... I mean, the numbers of murdered people in gulags. It's kind of... Russia is the champion of self... Of suicide. It kind of It kind of takes it to a different level. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like you know, like, there's a lot of suicidal cultures out there. Russia is just like, you know... Has there about. ever been a Russian leader who would, you know, promote joy and, I don't know, happiness or something like that? I mean... Who? Who is this person? At least the Germans killed other people. <laughs> you know? Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that argument from Russian. Well, is Have it really? Yeah, it's quite common. Is part of it also that Russian leaders or Russian elites see ordinary Russians as other, that there is a kind of internal foreignness? So look, actually, the, the system that I think it's most similar to, what I know, is, is the English one. Because obviously the English class system is based on the Norman invasion, and the class system is a legacy of internal colonization. Um, in Russia, yes. I mean, the way it's always explained is the Tatar Mongols came and conquered us. The Russian elites actually worked with them. Alexander Nevsky is the great Russian hero that's always top in the league of great Russian heroes, actually worked with the Mongols, and his great... Cl- Efficiency was murdering his own people in their service. So when the Russians become the new Mongols, they then oppress themselves. And it's like, you know, as a former, you know, we see this problem over and over, sort of colonial cultures, when they get into power, take on the attributes of the imperial master. And so Russia kind of internalized the Mongol yoke and yoked its own people. Um, anyway, that's what, that's what people tell, tell me when, when I drink with Russians. That's how they explain <laughs> it. I'm like, where does it start? They're like, it's the Tatar Mongols. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> yeah, but at least, but at least recently, maybe the last couple of centuries, Russians have been rather resistant when it comes to outside powers trying to assert control over them. There is this idea of Russian sovereignty and Russians controlling Russia where, you know, in, in large swaths of the Middle East, you, you don't have that, for example, but Russians have held on to this sense of we are at least going to be in in control of her own destiny or is that just a misreading because at least that's that's been the case for a while that russians have been very protective and saying we are we are russians we kill each other but at least we're not going to have another country or another imperial power or the u.s or whatever um telling us what to do it's the gift of geography in a way right russia conceives of itself as a great power and empire and obviously they think that way yeah yeah we we have the right to create our own gulags. But they, no, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but yeah. they're also that's able that's to. Our, that's, our, right. that's, our, that's, our, that's a sign of our power, yeah. But it's also yeah, you're the fact that we can kill our own people and arrest them and rid them of rights is a sign of power. But yeah. but but again, the difference is that in the Middle East and in Europe also, it's the geography plays a role. I mean, that's always been the fact that that Russia is so massive, you can just always retreat and and uh, uh, and fight another day. Whereas Poland didn't have that option. You're not retreating anywhere. Ukraine also doesn't have that option, even though much less than Poland. I mean, uh, well, I mean, if you talk about Poland and Russia, Russia has always managed to, you know, I think it's partitioned Poland three times now over the course of Poland's history, always in the name of self-defense. Right, right. I know, because they're so worried about the foreign... Lithuanians coming and dominating them. We hear a lot about it. The Lithuanians are coming because the Lithuanians came for like five days in like the, you know, the 16th century. The Lithuanians are coming, therefore we have got to take Crimea. Right. Yeah. Right, right. I'm glad we've internalized that logic because it's important. Yeah. 
No, but all, all I'm saying is, I mean, compared to, to to the Middle East, is that that I, it's just a tighter geographical spread, right? And you have yes, the, the, Russia's the, very the, tight; it's very tiny, and it's surrounded by enemies. Right? No, no, yeah. no, no. But uh, the <laughs> fact that it, that it's not, you know, it can have this 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 uh, paranoia about constantly being invaded, but in as a matter of fact, it can also do this like weird sovereigntist things, like we don't let anyone do it because they can get away with it. Poland can have a we're sovereign sort of uh, ideology, but they're going to get invaded because but, but, they have Germans next door and Russians, right? But, so, but, but to take uh, like Egyptians as a contrast, another sort of self-perceived great nation, Egyptians still to this very day see themselves as the center of the universe, as one of the the world's greatest civilizations. I know it's probably well, sounds absurd. Well, at least they were at some no, point. No, 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 no. They still think history. they I'm, are. But yeah, I, well, yeah, that's the problem. But at least they were, unlike Russians. Wait, but, I mean, when was yeah. it? Well, Egypt was a great civilization like 3,000 years yeah, ago, so it's been a long time. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> like with Italians, they also suffer from yeah, that. Yeah, but right? Russians have at, at some point been a great civilization. Like, right? Uh, no. I'm Peter sorry. Saying, Russian, no, saying. no, no, no. Russians were like dissent when they, you know, started, uh, you know, accommodating all the um, good from the West, of course, because everything all good comes from the West. It was like the 18th century and uh, a little bit of that. But before that, it was a mess. It was like the the Ivan, Ivan the Terrible. And... You know, so when, uh, when Shakespeare was writing his plays, Russians were handing dogs and people. Well, so, to be fair, so <laughs> with the English. That was like, that, okay, I mean, but, like, hanging dogs was like kind of a thing. But there's a lot to be proud of when it comes to, uh, music literature in the last 150 years. And aren't there also, you know, I'm just bullshitting. I don't know what I'm yeah. talking about. But they're not but, that great. No, but there are, they're no. Like, they but, met some European standards. That's it. But Egyptians don't have that. Like, when you look back at well, the last 150 you years. You have Mo Salah, okay? Mo Salah just kind of just like, yeah. just kills everything. <laughs> so no, that's, a, that's a football, or sorry, soccer player for our, our, for our American. For our American listeners. A soccer player? Yeah. A soccer player. Okay. Oh, one of the greatest uh, yeah. soccer players of the, of the yeah. modern era. Yeah. But I guess like, so... Egyptians, we even, uh, sorry, I sh- maybe I shouldn't use the word, I-, I shouldn't use the royal we when I'm talking about Egyptians, because I don't really consider, well, that's a whole story on its own. Yeah. But I am originally, my parents came from Egypt, so I'm Egyptian-American, I guess. And, um, you know, Egyptians still talk about Egypt. They use this Arabic phrase, Ummidunya, which means mother of the world. And that's still a phrase that is often used to this very day, that despite the fact that we have really no great victories or successes that we can claim, at least in the last several hundred years, there still is this sense of Egyptian greatness. And that actually creates a certain sense of dissonance in the self-perception because Egyptians are confused. They've encountered a precipitous decline, yet they still hearken back to this this great illustrious history that can really fuck you up to so, have so, so, that so in dissonance. The, in the, in the, sorry, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, 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 go, 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 come on, <laughs> no, come on, no. overpolite, no, Russians. No, I was just a quick remark. That's what distincts Russians from Egyptians. Egyptians, you know, at least one, they were like the mother of the world at, at once, right? At some point, and second, they now have this, you know, existential crisis in their mind. So they know they are in decline, but they know also know that they were great. Russians don't have any hesitation over that. They, you know, they think they are great and they have always been. But what this is based on, I have no idea. But there is a Russian sense of decline, like something went wrong. I mean, is it? No, is not, no, no. I mean, everything went great. Actually, <laughs> no, but 
But I mean, the 1990s, where you have the collapse of the uh, of the structures that people had grown up with and were used to, and the 90s were a time of trauma and of chaos and of not understanding what it meant to be Russian in this new phase, and there was almost this sense of 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 um, of being overturned that everything we knew to be true as Russians was no longer true. So that, that come, that's where some of the surrealism comes into it, right? That the nineties were a sense of collective trauma of we don't want to go back to the way things were in the nineties where we lost our sense of certainty, when we lost our sense of self, where this kind of hyper capitalism, hyper consumerism took over everything. And there is that narrative of the 90s being this very dark time. Is, it, is that not fair to say? Okay. So I only came to Russia in the early, two, early 2000s, but I did visit it a lot in the 90s. And I already started working there. And, you know, Karuni can tell you much more. Um, and certainly, I was working on documentaries during the 90s as a translator, um, covering this period and everything you said was true about this incredible turmoil this lack of a language sense of self uh social roles one thing never went away we are an empire and we are great that did not disappear for a second Hmm. not Hmm. for a second you see we say the same it means that's the early 90s it's that's who we are we're an empire and we're great we don't know if we're communist capitalists uh, if it's prestigious to be a millionaire or an engineer, all that, yes. But that we're great, obviously. But how do people who think they're great reconcile that greatness with the sense of turmoil and the sense that something had gone wrong that people could feel kind of instinct, in, instinctually, instinctively that, um. How do they reconcile it? Alexeyevich, they talk about the Russian soul. They can't reconcile it, so they go, oh, it's the Russian soul. Which is the way of not dealing with all yeah. these glaring contradictions. Well, and then they, they point to this idea that there's these times of troubles that come up. And then there's all this mythology of But you do this to what well, extent right? this is all, you know. Yeah, it's Russia, all mythology. Uh, well, it's not mythology. It's, it's, it's a replacement for, for really trying to understand what's going on. Well, so, you know, I mean, um, so there's a, there's a, uh, a tweet by, uh, I don't know if you guys know who Thomas Chatterton Williams is. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Uh, he's a cultural critic, uh, is, uh, African American, I think born in Jersey, moved to Paris. Has uh, a great he, new book out actually called Self Portrait in Black and White. Yeah. Uh, over, Unlearning, Unlearning Race. Unlearning Race. We, yeah. we, we ran a review of it in the magazine. Um, uh, so he tweets, uh, I thought it was really funny. I just wanted to bring it up here. Said, uh, I often think of something my blonde haired, blue eyed Russian sister in law told me. It reveals how race is not about biology. When there's an especially well laid table, she said, it is not uncommon in Russia for someone to remark, ah, tonight we will eat like white people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that. actually they say that. That's absolutely <laughs> I've heard it so many times, but only when you said it in English that I realized how yeah. racist oh, it is. Exactly. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, yes. so I've only been to Russia. I was there, uh, in 2003. And, and, and the, 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 the weird way how that, as you said, like, like these, these things that are totally commonplace as in Russian 
that really strike you when you first arrive. And, you know, you're, you're learning Russian. I was learning Russian at the time. And yeah, the, the, the thing about white and black and how this all plays out. I don't no, know. So, no white and black. So, okay. So, okay. so, so I, I can speak bit. for racism because my father is Armenian and Armenians and as well as Georgians and Azeris, this former, uh, Soviet Union, uh, countries and, um, like Caucasus, right? Yeah. So they're perceived as, you know, blacks. So they're the blacks of, of Russia. And so my father would always be called like a, so they don't call them an N word, but the similar to N word is like the Chernozhopis, like black assed. Like, yeah. So even though I'm, you know, light hair, uh, I have light hair, light, light eyes. So I don't really look like Armenian because they're like don't dark. They look like more, sh- more like shoddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. I'm, okay. uh, like my, my father, my, my father Sh- Shoddy does. the black ass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my father looks like Shani a bit. Uh, <laughs> wow, I did not know that about your father. <laughs> yeah, that's a very important piece of information. Uh, so uh, yeah, and he would—he, I mean, he would be harassed all the time in the nineties, and I would be harassed, and so that's how I have uh, like a perfectly normal Russian last name. This is my mother's last name, of course, not my father's, and she chose to give me her last name because she knew in 1985 uh, like you know how hard it is to be raised and you know in russia to uh, bury in this well, armenian last name and so, so she was hmm. right actually. but you know again you know that, that there is this this again i i think it gets at something maybe i don't know correct me if i'm wrong guys about again sort of this weird Russian identity and this kind of insecurity about it. There are no black people in Russia. Yet, well, there are yet, a few. Whoa. And when, when no, 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 no. Russians see yeah. that, this is, this but, is, yeah. doesn't this go back to, to no, no, feudalism? Where does this, where does this no, chordy no, 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 come no, no. from? This, this blackness? Doesn't it come from some no, sort hold, of hold, feudal hold, thing? Hold, let's rewind a little bit. Yeah. No, no, Russia is an empire. It's deeply multicultural, very multi-ethnic and very multiracial. Sure. There might not be black Africans, but... As, as Karina says, they would just refer to people from the Caucasus and it's got Central Asian and then there's Tatars living in the middle there's of it. There's a large Muslim minority. Yeah, and then it's very, very multi, multi-colored when you go there. And obviously a lot of Kalmyks, a lot of Asians. So that, that, that is, it is not, this is not a white country. And actually, if we go into that, so, um, in America, Italians were referred to as black when they first arrived. No, so these right. are very really no. moving things. Yeah. Um, is it moving in Russia as well? The target of this, or has it? Is it more set in language and culture somehow that it's just like there's there's no, no, something no, no, about the ethnic a, Russian and then the there's other. There's a complete schizophrenia between Russian nationalism, which has a, like a white thing going, and the reality of kind of like it's it's an empire wants to be an empire, and they're constantly going back and forth. It's one of these er- many irreconcilable contradictions. Mm. We want to be an empire. We don't want all these tajiks in our city. It's just like, choose, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, this is one of the many, you know, it can't understand is it a nation or an empire. Again, there are par- the closest parallel in that sense in terms of his- historical confusions is, is, is Britain. Britain, for all its, you know, illnesses, is probably a healthy way of dealing with losing an empire. But, Russia has never thought of itself as a nation. It's always been an empire. Now it has to make sense of it as a nation, but it's kind of a federal nation. It's it's very confusing. Hmm. Um, so while I completely agree that the messianic nature and the theatricality is very similar to America, um, and America and Russia, for me, do feel quite similar at times, um, in terms of historical baggage, Britain and Russia are very nice parallels. Also, two empires on the edge of Europe who define themselves by constantly asking, am I European? 
Right. Okay, but may, but maybe one difference, and uh, here I'm in a kind There's of a few in, differences. I'm just saying the similarity. <laughs> but no, uh, but one ahead, difference sorry, that stands out for me, uh, you know, as an American and as someone who's not a Russian, um, and I'll indulge perhaps in some stereotypes here, and I hope that you'll forgive me for that. But um, I think that there is this idea that Americans are very forward-looking. That, you know, when Americans look at the Middle East, they're like, get over that shit that happened like a hundred years ago. So this is America where the president says, make America great again. That, no, that, this America? No, no, I think the, the, all, no, the, the, all the, America, right? No, but I, I, yeah, you're right. I Trump share is, the same views. Trump, Trump is in, more, perhaps in some ways more past centric than I he's think. He's more Russian. He is he's Russian. We've been saying this that's for so interesting. long. That's <laughs> actually, he does, in that, that's a very interesting point, actually. But I would say that Americans writ large are, there's a kind of, in built in optimism of looking to the future that the past is the past and it's time to move on. It's time to get over that shit. But even to be fair, Trump and Trump supporters do have this approach when it comes to race that, Hey, bad things happened back then, but black people are experiencing their, the best unemployment rates of several generations and Trump. So I think there, even with like Trump or Trumpist, there is this sense of get over it. The future is here. The future is not history. And I think that, and this is a reference, uh, you know, to Masha Gessen's book, which is called The Future is History. And I think that she's getting at something important there that Russia, Russia or Russians are not traditionally very future centric. That would be the stereotype, at least. Absolutely true. Russians don't have the future because, you know, it always changes uh, and it can change at any given moment. The, the so, future or, or yeah, do you mean the like past? The reality, the reality. <laughs> okay. So Russians don't plan ahead. So that's why we don't have like, you know, retirement plans. We, we have like state pension, but no, really, that's true because you cannot plan like five years ahead. It's, it would be insane. It would be crazy because, I mean, you know, if you ask, if you ask a Moscovite, like, what are you going to do in five years? And it's going to be okay. In 2024, there's like a big question to be decided. Where does Putin go? Does he go to, you know, this chair or that chair or whatever? And no one knows. And I think everyone, like every second Russian is anticipating something happens, you know, like in two years, tomorrow, today. So it, it's always been like that. So that's why Russians, they're not Big plan. Okay, but how much of that is a cognitive thing that at some basic level cognitively in terms of how Russians think about the world around them, that they're not able at some basic level to think into the future? And this is not to make like a <laughs> no, this is not to make like a biological point. It's just to say that we just, are. I think, I, I think that was just no. a biological no, point. No, 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 but we're products of our circumstances. So even when you look at, you know, Egyptians, I think there's something similar can be said. If you've grown up only under authoritarianism, my parents did not grow up under anything but authoritarianism. And I'm, I've always been a big believer that nothing distorts the human spirit more than authoritarianism that there it 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 warps the way you understand time and the way that you understand the world around you that doesn't mean that there's anything inherent about it because if egyptians had grown up with the same biological content but they were growing up in a democracy they would be different but they grew up under an authoritarian regime but god you know um thank god my parents were able to leave egypt and and have some of their formative years in the U.S., my mom in her 20s and my dad in his 30s. 
And that changed the way they saw the world. But their DNA, I mean, their DNA was the same, but you put them in a different set of circumstances, a different environment, and they become different people. And even the way they understand time becomes different. So, so you've been referencing Alexeyevich's book, which is called Secondhand Time, and, yeah. and we could think about that idea of Russian time. So let, let, let's take it. I don't know about things like DNA. I'm, I'm, I'm not a biologist, uh, but I, 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 I do think about language a lot. So what's very interesting in Russian that there is no concept of the pluperfect. The pluperfect is I had done something. That's a past that it's already definitely in the past. So quite the opposite. There is a future tense in Russia. There isn't a sense of a past that you've left behind, which is also a sense of historical progress. So that's very interesting. And the fact that Russian grammatically doesn't have a pluperfect. Uh, and therefore, you know, there's a sense that maybe the past can never be left behind. Um, the most popular and most repeated, I'm not saying that now sort of statistically, I just, my sense, it's often repeated phrase, uh, that's used in Russian political kind of slang these days is from a former prime minister, Viktor Chernomirin, um, we wanted to make things better, but it ended up the same shit as always. There is definitely a fatalism in Russian culture, which Karina's talking about, and a, and, and a lack of really, as you say, historically determined, not really worth planning for the future when you might end up in the gulag tomorrow, or the power might change, and you know, one day you're, um, you know, you're better and running the Soviet Union, the next day you're shot. Um, having said that, um, there is a utopian thing. Uh, that's deeply ingrained and a kind of messianic thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the way communist ideology was expressed in Russia was incredibly forward looking. So there is some capacity. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not the Western idea of rational time. Yeah. It's some sort of like, you know, that kind of the glorious drunk future when you can't have yeah, a sense the, of progress. The bright communist future that we're building. Mm. Yes, exactly. I was, I wanted to mention it, but no one believed in that shit. I mean, maybe for like, you know, one year, someone did believe in it, but it was like really utopian. And I mean, so it, everybody knew in the Soviet Union, I guess, like most of, uh, you know, the majority of the people, they knew it was like, you know, some pretext, you know, some cover up for, you know, whatever shit the party was doing. That's, you know, one, right? So it's funny, right? That the, the current sort of turn of events with, uh, what's happening in Russia, and we've been going at it for hours, so we should probably, uh, wind up pretty soon. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that. Don't that, make me sad, Demir. Why? Yeah, it's time. We need some meat. Yeah. Means, some wait, meat do, you, do you mean like literally? Literally or metaphorically, both, both, really. <laughs> well, you think this been it's been thin gruel, Peter? This hasn't been. Uh, but you know, but you know what I wanted to do before this ended? Go I on. wanted to quote something from Masha Gessen. Oh, oh no. really? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Wait, I mean, okay, okay, ahead, wow, that was not okay. Look, I know whatever people think she has her perspective, of course, but she can be a wonderful stylist as a writer, and I think that you know it can just be enjoyable to read her sometimes but you guys don't you're not into it whatever go on, go no, on. no no quite the opposite no i think i think she's been an, an, an incredible hear. articulator of, of the russian condition okay Americans. so i just wanted because we were talking about the 90s and what is that she says better it. than her brother though is it masha or keith if you have to choose of course masha is better i mean i what, look, really? i'm not a big fan of i mean i don't you i haven't read keith a lot doesn't? of keith's stuff i guess he's he's he wrote a novel recently yeah, or whatever a very successful novel just out yeah, I, I didn't, okay, I didn't read you it. You don't have to choose. Okay. <laughs> but like, if you had to, you know. <laughs> okay, so she has this really interesting article in the New York Review of Books that came out in 2014. You might recall it. It's called The Dying Russians. And I absolutely love it. And I'll just maybe quote something. 
Russians started dying in the 1990s in this kind of like random way, not from natural causes. But what Masha Gessen's trying to convey in this essay is that something very dark started happening and she started seeing it with her friends and acquaintances. And she starts off the essay. Bad cocaine? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, she starts off the essay with this sentence. Back in the United States after a trip to Russia, this is Masha Gessen talking now. Back in the United States after a trip to Russia, I cried on a friend's shoulder. I was finding all this death not simply painful, but impossible to process. It's not like there is a war on, I said. So Masha is saying this to a friend. But then her friend responds, but there is a war going on. And her friend is a somewhat older and much wiser reporter than Masha, as Masha sees it. And then her friend, her friend says this, this is what civil war actually looks like. It's not when everybody starts running around with guns. It's when everybody starts dying. So here, so some of her friends are dying from like alcohol, like alcohol poisoning. Some of her friends, some of her friends or acquaintances committed suicide and jumped off a building. Some of them just died early from a heart attack out of nowhere without any kind of warning. So it's just that there's something, and it's comparable, I think, to what, what American analysts are, are talking about now, this idea of deaths of despair, that life expectancy has gone down for the first time in, in decades, if not longer, because especially white males are dying, and something is wrong, and they're not dying from natural causes. It's about depression, it's about alcohol, it's about drugs, so, so, so it's listen, about it's about not wanting to live. Yeah. So so I mean, like you know, go back to um, so it's almost sort of the sort of it is sort of a mass suicide. Even some people do it through suicide, some doing it through drink. It is a self destructive thing, and you know, th there's lots of sociology on it, and and I think it is a very similar process. And I try to kind of address it tangentially in my book. Um, suicide peaks happen when there's some sort of rupture in the culture, where people lose their sense of orientation. Those difficult periods and that everybody has in their lives. If you have a strong culture around you and stability that can carry you through. And so Durkheim sponsored, you know, noticed this many, many decades, you know, a long, long time ago. And there's analysis, for example, the spike of suicides in Sweden. You know, this, you know, remember Sweden had very high suicide rates and everyone was like, it's because of the weather. It's like Norway has the same weather and not the same problem. And there's a massive shift in Swedish culture between a kind of a Christian culture and a, you know, a neoliberal culture, shall we say. Um, and yes, that, 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 that is very true that there was a massive rupture in, in, uh, uh, in the cultural framework through which people get through the difficult bits of their lives in Russia and, and in bits of America. Um, but if you look at, read Oliver Bulo's book, which is actually tries to get into the figures of this and the numbers of this and taking it much, much deeper, it starts in the 1970s. That's when it starts. That's when the very uh, early death rate uh, starts. That's when the alcoholism peaks. So it's that that loss of um, uh, we can think about why it happens then. But it actually, it's actually something that was it wasn't just the 1990s that started to happen much much earlier. All right. So I mean, that's all. Uh, what I was sort of getting at is what's interesting about the, the current moment is that you know you were saying communism, no one really believed uh, any of it in any case. But it's just now you have this this uh, this shift in government. Uh, 
with Putin and and no one cares. Like literally, literally, no one. I mean, I mean, unless I'm, I'm, I'm wrong. No, no, absolutely, it's, it's, no one cares. Every, it's it's oh, no, there's a whole like like like. Oh, no, what you, please, please. There is a whole employment structure in this city based on people caring. So no, here, please don't destroy things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but but but, but it's true, right? Pension it's, funds. It's 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 that it's that uh, the the charade is 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 everyone's in on the joke at this point, really. I mean, yeah. and no one's even no one's even no one's even pretending, right? Uh, my sense is. Do people? I mean, Karina, question for you: Do people in the sort of Russia watching community care much more than Russians? Who are like, yeah, whatever. What? I, <laughs> do no, Russians I, care about this kind of these changes in the Russian government? With Medvedev. Yeah. Oh no, they no, just, just like whatever. No, like, no one. Care. I mean, no one really cares because no one knows that they can't affect anything. Wait, you guys, can I just just a, a point of information? Who who is this person that you mentioned? So Medvedev, the Russian Medvedev. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev resigned yesterday wait, out thought, of out of the blue. Wait, there's a Russian Prime Minister? Yes, yes, yes. Not, yeah, there's another one actually. In fact, okay, I'm a just messing. Around. Okay, I'm messing around. But <laughs> it, it, it is no. I'm trying to make a point here that like he doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the Russian no, Prime no, no, Minister no. is as long no, as sure. Putin's in power, no, for right? Sure. That's exactly yeah. right. But what I'm saying is, it's just like that. That that uh, you know. Uh, if this started in the 70s, as Peter was saying, that, that, you know, we're at a level Dimir, of... Do, are you saying we should anticipate a new wave of, uh, people suddenly dying? No, when, no, no, I, no, I mean, no. I'm saying the, the opposite. I'm saying the opposite. It's just been so internalized right now that there's, there's, it's the, the, the mass suicides at Rosneft. Right. Sorry. No, no bonuses. But, bad cocaine. That, Actually, the the issue of bad cocaine is real big now in oh. Russia. Yeah, because several people died. Like you know, this famous guy Pasha face control, who is you the guy who would you he was know, he was the guy who was face controlling the clubs. Yes, that I just yeah. Yeah. and yeah. he was thirty seven and he died. And there was another one like Pasha Tsveta Muzika, DJ, whatever. And one of my friends has now real big problems with heart and he took a lot of cocaine so i suspect so why is it bad what's wrong with it no i think it's just uh some like really bad cocaine like chemically bad like you know not a yeah 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 mixed with you know like i don't know was it something. from venezuela was it was it smuggled through uh, venezuela? Unfortunately, is it part of probably not deals? anymore maybe it's some uh like moscow suburbs cocaine or something yeah but i was Oh, Shari, I've never heard of this, you know, what Masha says about the 90s, that, you know, people started dying suddenly. Really, that's some, that strikes me as some kind of bullshit. I'm no, sorry. but we know that mortality, like there, there no, was a more Statistically, there was a very big spike in suicides and a very hard drop-off rate of... of, of okay, the, suicides, that's one. No, but, but people but just But to like, say that people just start dying, like, you know, like flies start, you know, die, dying or what? Well, what is that? I mean, I mean, none of... of Anyone that I know died in the nineties. But you, but you also were like kind of young in the nineties. Yeah, like. none of my, you know, none of my mom's friends. I mean, yeah, one, yeah, okay, a, a husband of one of, you know, the, the, the woman. She she lived near us. Yeah, he was shot. Yeah, because he was okay, a, he well, was mafia. Uh, okay, yeah, well, that counts. Yeah, that for sure. I but mean, that's easily explained. But my mom doesn't have a lot of friends who were shot. Yeah, speak for yourself, shot. <laughs> Anyway, guys, uh, wait, wait, whoa, 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 yeah, it's time, it's time, Shadi. We've been at this for a while. We're like, I, I, any Karina's having so much fun. Look at Karina right now. No, all I, all I can say, like, look at our final point. If Russians could die of despair, I can tell you, Russian population would shrink to like you know six million of people. All of them are officials, and you know this chinovniki. Like whatever. So I'll give you, I'll give you one last thing. Others would die. Something to cheer you up. The, the clown Slava Palunin, who's this wonderful clown, theatre clown, he does this sort of very amazing routines, uh, once told a friend of mine how he has to change his clown routines in different countries. So when he does a clown routine in, 
And he does these incredible things about sort of a sad person committing suicide. They're, they're very tragic and full of the Russian soul. Um, and so when he does them in England, they have to have a story. There's got to be a story attached to it, yeah? When he does them in France, there has to be some kind of intellectual level to it in some way, which is quite hard to do with physical theatre. Uh, in America, it's got to have a happy ending. And in Russia, it's got to have a tragic ending. That's just what you bloody well want. Hmm. Uh, and there was a very funny thing that I was told taught in film school, because I went to film school in Russia. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, there was this, like, early period in the very early talkies, uh, when talkies first appeared and whenever they appeared, 20s, 30s. Wait, what are, what are talking, talking movies? Yeah? Oh, okay. Because before okay. you just had silent movies and you could do one movie for all the markets, suddenly you had to do talking movies. And, and, and I don't know if this is an anecdote that people say in Russian film school or it's true, but again, it's quite indicative, even if it's just an anecdote. Um, so the way talking movies were done at the start, is you'd have German actors, Russian actors, French actors, English language actors. So the German actors would film a scene, then the Russian actors would do their version of the scene, and the English actors. And that way, the film studios, which the biggest ones were in Berlin and Paris at that time, would be able to create like four or five language versions of the same film. They found they had to change the last scene in the Russian version ones to give it a tragic ending. Oh. So there is like, there is a desire for tragic endings. And that's part of kind of the pathos. You um, know, what's really interesting. We have something similar, um, in the, in the Arab world. There's actually a term for it when someone will say, Oh, that's a, oh, had a film Arabi, which means, Oh, that's an Arabic film. And they say that to suggest that there has to be like, a kind of melodramatic end to a movie because that's what Egyptians expect that there has to be something that really speaks to, Oh my God, someone fell in love or fell out of love or died, like died of sadness. And, you know, it's this kind of idea of this hyperbolic emotional state. I'm really enjoying these comparisons between Egypt and, 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 and Russia because Russia <laughs> in Russian culture, it was us in America I mean, they even don't want to compare themselves to Britain because Britain gave up on being an empire. And they're like, oh, God, it's a little bit, you know, don't want to hang out with them. Passe. Um, and I like these comparisons with Russia and Egypt. And, and, and oh. I think that's a, a healthy strain of analysis, which I, I fear a lot of Russians would, would, would still reject. Which is, yeah, because I don't thing. think Russians probably want to be compared too much to Egypt, mm. right? Yeah. I'll give you one last anecdote. So I was in a, <laughs> I was in a, I was in a car with a taxi driver in, in Russia when I used to live there. Um, and, and, and the guy was saying that he's about to leave Russia and go to America. And I was with a Canadian friend and the Canadian friend was like, look, listen, why don't you go to Canada instead of America? Look, you know, we have better healthcare. The guy's really, and you know, he tells him about American healthcare and Canadian healthcare. We have better education system and the taxi driver's agreeing and all this stuff like Canada's much better and you get better property and all this stuff. And, and, and at the end I'm like, you know, ask the taxi driver. So, so do you think you'll, you'll, you'll move from Russia to, to Canada? And he sort of looks, looks at us in the sort of, in the window and says, I can only live in a great country. I have to go to America. <laughs> mm. What he meant by yeah. great was Vilikaya, as in a great yeah, power. power. I can yeah. only make, I can only live in a great power. So it has to be America, even though Canada's better. And yeah. that is the whole Russian thing. Yeah. Okay. That's actually, that's a good way to That's really good. Amazing. It's, yeah. hold on. That's a journalistic anecdote about a taxi driver. We're that's not allowed right. to use those. No, yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> Tom Friedman made a multi-billion dollar career on just that. I love that, man. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.